This church in Corinth was in trouble. They were kind of a mess. Um, they, they had a bunch of stuff going on, and when they would come together, um, non-believers would leave and go, these guys are nuts. What kind of cult did I get into? And uh, so Paul uh, understood that there's a couple of principles that were moving throughout this church. Number one is they tended to put an emphasis on their individual gifts more than the corporate needs of the church. In other words, I'm going to do my gift my way, my time. That's what they wanted. And if you don't let me, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. Paul says, no, that's not true. They had, uh, I think, a general rejection of of, uh, leaders. Uh, They were coming in and never really submitting their gifts to the leaders and never submitting their gifts to each other. Just operating kind of, if you will, uh, by their own, I'm the captain of my soul. I get to do what I want. I think they had an association, and this is maybe one of the most dangerous things, is they had this association that life in the spirit leads to this kind of spontaneous, uncontrollable action. In other words, they would whip off in a tongue and say, I'm led by the Holy Spirit, I can't stop myself. Or I've got a word from God and it doesn't matter that you're going in for surgery tomorrow and you're in for life or death. I got a word from God and you need to hear it. By the way, repent or you're going to die. It was just this kind of crass, uh, barbaric kind of approach with each other. And when Paul came into this church, no, he didn't say you're all done. He didn't say stop the gifts. He he, he simply said, and he summarized at the end of chapter 14, he says, but everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Why? Because he wanted the gifts to build up the body, to edify them, strengthen them, encourage them. And, And the reality is when we use our gifts, our way, our time for our purposes, we usually do destructive things in the church. And so we want to look this morning at, in particular, two of them. But before we do that, we want to lay again a groundwork that Paul does in this very text. We've touched it last week, but I want to come back to it because I think it's pretty critical. And that is this issue of the authority of the scriptures. We believe in our church, it would be the orthodox position in Christendom around the world, that the Bible is 66 books canonized, formed, inspired by God, preserved by God, recognized by the church, multiple different criteria. It speaks about God, authenticated authorship in alignment with the other text. And over time, this canon became formed and we believe closed. Why? For two reasons I'll give you. Number one is because the Bible says in Revelation, that's 22nd chapter, that you should not be adding to this prophecy. You should not be adding to this work of God. But even Paul in this text gives us an indication that he understood his scripture, his teaching was different than other prophecies. So Paul would say, you're not going to put the scriptures and prophecy on the same level. He doesn't. Let's look at verse 37 of this chapter, chapter 14, verse 37. 
Paul is writing to them and he says, if anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. What's Paul's point? It's quite clear. I'm writing under the inspiration of God. I'm giving you the word of God and I don't care who you are, how gifted you are, you are secondary to what? The commands of the Lord. So Paul is telling us that there is an authority, there is a distinction. Why? I believe because of his apostolic office. Because of the position that he had, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of God. He does it in another location, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He's talking about the return of Christ, and he's telling them that Christ is going to come back, and these things are going to occur, and you can expect this kind of thing. But as you well know, when you get to the issue of the second coming, people just get weird. I mean, in 1988, for those of you who were alive, remember there was 88 reasons why Christ was going to come back in 1988. Bummer. (laughs) Didn't happen. Or this whole thing that we're doing right now is not even real. 2000, Y2K. (laughs) Man, the Christian community came out of that one looking solid and silly. We had all kinds of predictions of why that was going to be the return of Christ. Here's Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians. He makes this statement. Don't believe anyone who differs from the teaching of what I have given to you. That's a very strong admonition to say, I am giving you something that is authoritative, that stands contra or above, if you will, any prophecy that you receive. What's the summary? The summary is this. Today, the New Testament stands where the apostles stood. We believe in our church. It's never going to change. It's not going to change ever, ever, ever. If it changes, probably most of us walk. And therefore, it can't change. This is God's word. And in fact, because the New Testament endorses the Old Testament as God's inspired word, we take the whole Bible... All 66 books as our rule and our measuring rod of all teachings and all prophecies about what we should believe and how we should live. Much like Paul says, whatever you hear out there, whatever prophetic word you receive, it needs to be sifted by, weighed by, evaluated by the scriptures. Honestly, when you stay in that lane, you're going to avoid about 99% of junk. Because you're going to have something that is true and something that is authoritative and something that is from God to be able to look and evaluate and take everything captive, 1 Corinthians says, to the obedience of Christ. You take everything and you bring it into alignment. That's one pillar. I have another pillar that I want to look at before we jump specifically into this text. And that is the prophecy that was fulfilled on Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples, about 120 of them, the 12 or the 11, they've added one. They're sitting up in a room and they're hanging out and they're waiting. Why are they waiting? Because Jesus told them to wait. He told them in Acts or in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, I want you to go wait and the power from on high is going to come upon you. They had no idea what he was talking about. 
They'd heard about the Holy Spirit. Jesus had taught about it. Had they experienced it? Probably not. Their understanding is that the Holy Spirit would come and leave. That was David's understanding. That was their understanding. So the idea that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them, they had no clue. Acts chapter 2 tells us that they're up there waiting and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And it says it manifests in these tongues of fire. Now, what does that mean? What, it, what happened? Well, verse 11, when you go down to chapter 2, verse 11, it begins to unpack that. And it went something like this. When the tongues came upon them, there would be an individual speaking and he would be telling, preaching the gospel. He would be telling them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this one person speaking, remember again, it's Pentecost and, and they have all kinds of people flooding Jerusalem. It was the most multinational city in the world when Pentecost occurred, when Passover occurs. So here are these individuals, people from everywhere. Some estimate a couple hundred, maybe even 300 different dialects and languages. And there was somebody preaching. And what would happen, Acts 2.11, is one person would preach and every person out there, whether they were from Egypt or whether they were from Jordan or whether they were from Iraq, today's Iraq, they heard that speaker in their language. When I was studying in Boston, I used to love flying through Logan or other eastern uh, airports because you could walk down. It would be my goal when I'd get off the plane before I went and got my baggage. My goal was to discern how many different languages I could listen to. And if you just walk down the airport, man, I'm telling you what, sometimes I'd get up to 20, 25 different languages. Now, the reality is I was probably double counting some of them because somebody would say something in, you know, Hungarian and another person would say something in Hungarian. And because I don't know Hungarian, I'd give it two votes. <laughs> but if you can imagine, I was standing there and I grabbed a chair and I stood up and I said, I have a word from God. I want to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. My language preferably would be English at that moment. And I would speak. And imagine if everybody, there was a group of Russians and there was a group from Germany, there was a group from Austria and there was a group from Spain and they were all coming down and they all stopped. And if you can imagine, I'm preaching the gospel in English, but every one of them uniquely, miraculously hears as if I'm speaking their language. That's what happened in Acts. This gift of tongues. Peter stands up and he says, what you're experiencing right now, folks, though is unique to us, it's bizarre to us. It's not new to God. And in fact, God through the prophet Joel prophesied that this was going to happen. And Peter says, folks, you are walking into the narrative that God has written. And we are going to receive visions and dreams and tongues and miracles. Why? Because Peter said, these are the last days. Last days, what? Before Christ comes back again. And stops this whole crazy stuff we're doing. 
and judges people for the final time and creates the new heavens and the new earth. And we join with him in celebration. Peter says, we're in the last days. And we know that because the prophecy of Joel is being realized. Here's the question. Did the last days stop? Because we know what's gonna happen in the last days. Joel prophesied it. Peter validated it and said, these What we're experiencing is the result of the prophecy of Joel. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to the right, to the book of Hebrews. Chapter one. Book of Hebrews is written predominantly to Jews, certainly to Greeks, but they were answering the question, is Christ supreme over all things? And the answer, in short, is yes. But the writer of the book of Hebrews begins, chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In answering the question, are we in the last days? Yes, we are. Are we in the last of the last days? I hope so. I hope so. I have reason to believe that we are. But we are in the last days. Therefore, if you take Peter's declaration, we are experiencing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and people are going to have visions and they're going to have dreams and there's going to be miraculous gifts. Why? Because God is going to do a work in these last days. Now, to be quite candid with you, no, I don't think the church expected last days were going to last 2,000 years. But sometimes we have to set aside what we expect, what we think, and we have to say, God, what is it? Hebrews tells us we're in the last days. Peter says we are experiencing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit just like Joel prophesied. And therefore, what Paul says in chapter 13 and 14 makes all the sense in the world. Eagerly desire what? The prophetic gifts, the miraculous gifts. Why? Because Joel prophesied it. We're in the last days. God wants to bring as many as he can to Christ part of the way he's going to do that is to supernaturally flood his church with the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we need some guidelines. And that's what Paul brings to us. How do you do this? How do you experience this without going to church and it being gone, man, it's just gone nuts. It's crazy. It's, it's irritating. Paul says, no, it doesn't need to be. It needs to be edifying. What does it mean to be edifying? He tells you right here in verse three. When a church is edified, they are what? Strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. And the fact is, how do we do that? Paul gives us two principles in this text. We know the baseline. The scripture is our authority. We know the baseline. Joel's prophecy is being poured out on the church. There seems to be no ceasing of that. There's nowhere in the text of scripture that says Joel's prophecy is going to last for one generation. It doesn't say Joel's prophecy is going to last for 300 years. It says Joel's prophecy is for the last days. Hebrews tells us we're in the last days. Biblically, I am 
bound to say we should pray for and expect the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon our church, upon believers in our church, that they would experience the fullness of what God wants to give to us in the gifts. We don't need to be prideful about it. We don't need to elevate people. But if God wants to strengthen and encourage and comfort our church, which I think we would all say yes, then our invitation is God pour out your spirit. He has two principles. The first principle is what I call the principle of edification. I have to find it for you from the scriptures. It simply means to build up. It means to strengthen. It means to encourage. What is encourage? The word technically means to brace the knee. To take a wobbly need individual who is fearful and afraid of moving forward and to brace them and to strengthen them so that that individual has power and to comfort them. That's his vision right here. And his principle is quite simple. Prophecy is to be preferred in the church, namely for one very important reason. Here it is. Tongues edifies the person while prophecy edifies the congregation. When you gather in your community groups, you're in a church setting, you're not home by yourself. When you gather in your home and you've invited people together in that small group, you're not home praying and worshiping to God. You're gathering in a community expression. No, it may not be 700 people. It may be seven but it's still the gathering of the church. It's still people. And the goal at that point is not that you are individually edified, not that you individually get to exercise your gift, but that you corporately commit to what? Our desire is that we together in this room would be edified. To do that, Paul says, I prefer prophecy. I prefer to utilize this gift of prophecy. Why? For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, verse 2, but to God. What is spoken to God? Two things, worship and prayer. You could classify them as, if you will, one is a subset of another. But I actually would distinguish them. The fundamental I. Uh, part of prayer might be, yes, our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. That's worship. Jesus would put those two together. But when you're orienting yourself to God, you are worshiping God, you are praying to God. And Paul says, that's the expression of tongues. What that tells you right there is that we now have at least two manifestations in the New Testament of the gift of tongues. Acts 2 1 Corinthians 14. They're different. They're not the same. Acts 2, it's a horizontal prophetic or, or a, a tongue spoken where people supernaturally hear in their own language. This one is unto God. And Paul says, I don't prohibit it. In fact, I wish all of you had it. You're not going to because he's already said, not everyone's going to have all the gifts. The fact is, it's to you and God. It edifies you. And the only way it's going to move out and touch other people, he says, is if you get an interpreter in there. Prophecy, quite contrary to that. Verse 3, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men. He speaks in a tongue, edifies himself. 
but he who prophesies edifies the church. That's why Paul had this passion for prophecy. Now, what is it? You're going to get a lot of different definitions on this. You're going to have some people that will go back to the Old Testament and say, uh, we know what a prophet, we know what prophecy is. It's Amos, it's Isaiah. Well, number one, make this observation with me. When you go back and look at those, how many of them, just the bulk percentage-wise, are their words foretelling the future or declaring the word of God for a specific people in a specific time? The, the vast majority, Jonah, Amos, Malachi, Micah, they're not projecting down the road saying there's going to be a drought coming. I'm not against that, but that's really not what they're doing. They're declaring God's word, warning a congregation, warning a people group, warning Nineveh, here is God's intention for you. Here is his pattern. Here's what he's going to do. I plead with you. I warn you. I ask you, don't walk this way. Repent. Turn around. Nineveh did. Oftentimes the nation of Israel did not. One of the criteria that we like to bring up in today's issue of prophecy is this thing that the Old Testament prophets had to speak 1,000%, meaning no mistakes, and if they did, we stone them. And so some people want to suggest that if we're going to allow for the gift of prophecy, we have to require that they are perfect. I'll tell you up front, I don't think that is the criteria of today's prophecy. Why? Let me give you a definition and then let me unpack it with you. This comes from David Hill. It's it's a good definition. I think it maybe could be expanded a little bit, but until I have a better one, I'm using his. Christian prophets are those who have grasped the meaning of scripture, perceived it's not is, it's powerful relevance. And here's the unique, I think, expression of prophecy Perceived as powerful relevance to the life of the individual, the church, and society, and declare that message fearlessly. The prophet, different than the teacher. The teacher is unpacking scripture. Good teachers are going to move it into application. But the prophet, under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is taking God's word applying it specifically, uniquely to a person, to a society, to a church, to a nation, and typically in alignment with the scripture is a warning, is pleading, is calling them to a truth of God, to repentance, that they might avoid the consequences of what God is going to bring if they don't turn. Why do I not believe that today's prophecy has to be perfect? Same reason I don't believe that those who teach, we have any expectation of their perfection. There's not a teacher in our church that we would say, whatever this person says is perfect, believe them. And please start with me. 
There's not a professor as much as I love them, and they are brilliant, many of them. But there is not a professor over at Corman that is teaching the Bible that we would say, that person is perfect, believe that person. No, we would say what? Test them. Weigh their words. Against what? The scriptures. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see through a mirror dimly. In other words, this side of heaven right now, we're not. No, we're not apostolic in position. We're not prophetic as in the Old Testament. We are bringing prophecy. It is a spirit prompted thought in alignment with the word of God to a specific person, people group, nation of which God brings warning, God brings pleading that they might avoid the consequence that God is going to bring to them. Let's turn in our Bibles to one place that's I think just critical that teaches this. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter five. Go right. First Thessalonians chapter five starts in verse 19. Paul is writing to them. If you are the most ardent dispensationalist, you got to wrestle with me. This is the church. This is the era that you say, yep, this is the church era. We're in the church era. This is where uh, the scripture is most applicable to us. Okay. If that's the case, let's read this together. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 19. Do not put out the spirit's fire. How do you do that? How do you put it out? Number one, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Let me stop. I have to warn you. I will do this as humbly as I can because I've been where some of you are at. If you write off prophecies, it doesn't exist today. We have to come back to this text and say, then what is Paul talking about? And if prophecy is nothing but teaching of the word of God, then why does Paul distinguish it differently? It can't merely be, and and as if teaching is merely something, but it, it can't strictly be teaching or preaching because Paul has a word for that and he uses a different word here. And by the way, He's associating it uniquely as I believe that it is. That it is an unction. It is a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Teaching is an exegeting of the text. You're bringing a specific hermeneutic, good hermeneutic, in terms of the science of interpretation. And you're coming to the text, yes, I believe, inspired by the Spirit of God, if you have the gift of teaching. But this one is the Spirit of God moves, and Paul says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. What does it mean to have contempt? It means to mock. It means to make fun of. It means to dismiss them. It it is to say they don't exist. And if you do, you're putting out the spirit's fire in your family and you're putting out the spirit's fire in your wife or you're putting out the spirit's fire in your husband and you're putting the spirit's fire out in your church. Don't do that. But rather, what do you do? Test everything. My friends, he goes on and he says, hold on to the good. What is the inference? There may be a prophecy 
that the person, for a variety of reasons, doesn't have it perfect. Paul presumes that. He expects that. Does it mean it's not supernatural? No. Does it mean it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit? No. Does it mean you stone the guy? No. What do you do? What do you do with that prophecy? You receive it. You test it. You hold on to it. 1 Corinthians 14, you weigh it. Weigh it against what? The scriptures. And you take that prophecy and you rack it up against the Bible. And you say, does this fit with the word of God? Does this come into an alignment with the word of God? And when you do that, he says, I want you to hold on to that which is good. And I want you to get rid of that which is evil. He doesn't say you stone the prophet if he's missed some of it. Now, let me tell you what. If somebody comes to me and says, I have a word from the Lord for you. And he does it five times and misses all five times. On the sixth time, I'm going to say pound sand. But he doesn't say. In fact, he warns you. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Why? Because God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit and I'm going to bring warning and I'm going to bring correction and I'm going to bring repentance to the church and I'm going to save marriages and I'm going to save churches if you will what? Not quench the spirit's fire. But that prophecy is going to be relevant to the life of an individual. Let me give you four illustrations of what prophecy I think can look like. And they're going to be very varied. And by the way, they don't come from charismatic people. They come from one Presbyterian and three Baptists. There. For those of you who think it prophecy only lands in the Pentecostal work, I'm going to a Presbyterian and three Baptists. Hallelujah. Number one, 1968, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. It's called Death in the City. I think if you were familiar with Francis's work, he was prophetic as a Presbyterian, at looking down the road, being guided by God and seeing things that other people didn't see. Why? Because I think it was prompted by the Holy Spirit. 1968, he wrote a book, Death in the City. And if you look at that book and you look at today, you would say, Francis, it seemed like you had the news from 2023 and we're writing about it in 1968. Francis wrote that book as a warning. Church, Nation, this is where you're headed. And if you head this direction, you're going to bring an internal decay and destruction of which, my friends, we are experiencing today in spades. And his prophecy, his word was, if you don't repent and if you don't turn back to God, you're going to destroy your nation. And I would say, He was absolutely right. And I would say apart from a revival and a major repentance in our country, brace for this entire thing economically, socially to be destroyed. It's happening. It's happening right in front of us in ways that we never imagined. I think Francis, when he wrote that book, had a prophetic movement of God, a word from God that he aligned with the scriptures. Nothing he said set the word of God aside, nor did he in any way trump the word of God. But he spoke with insight and he called the nation to repentance. And from my perspective, time's running out. Time is running out. Another situation, a man 
went to a church and the church was running somewhere around 14, 1500. I don't know the exact size. It was vibrant. It was beautiful. It was having a great impact, but there was a fracture in this church. There was a pride and there was an arrogance in this church that this dear brother with insight from God saw. And he went to the leadership and he said, I call you dear friends to repent. You have a spirit of arrogance in you and pride and it is sinned against the body of Christ in a number of areas. And he laid them out and he said, I plead with you, repent and turn back to God. Humble yourself before God and repent to those you have wounded. Because if you don't, here was the warning, God will take his blessing away from you. It's been a number of years later that church is somewhere under 200 and most likely will close. Why? Because a prophet spoke to them. A man with a prompting of the Holy Spirit in alignment with the word of God. Doesn't have the authority of God's word, but he comes with a what? powerful, relevant message to a church. And he pleaded with him, this is where you're going to walk. Today, you got all the bells and whistles, but there's a fracture in your heart. There's an arrogance that has gripped your leadership and God's going to pull his hand away from you. And I'm witnessing his very prophetic word. John Piper, pastor, former pastor, he's now retired. He was at Bethlehem Baptist and he was preaching one Sunday on small groups and he was just simply preaching about what happens in a community and the power that can happen in a community. And he was saying as he was preaching there in downtown Minneapolis, he said, you know what? Some of you think that all of our small groups are at home. Most of them are, or maybe they're here at the church, but then it don't have to be. In fact, you might work at the IDS building and he pointed over there. And in fact, you might be on the 34th floor and you might be praying, God, if you want me to start a Bible study here, would you tell me, would you rather I do this Bible study here in this building on the 34th floor that I might reach those that I go to work with or would you like me to do it at home? And John finished the sermon and a woman walked down after it was done, tears pouring out of her eyes. And she said, how did you know? John said, what do you mean? How did I know? How did you know that I work in the IDS building? How did you know I work on the 34th floor? How did you know I was in the lunchroom this week? And she turned over her prayer journal where she prayed that week, dear God, if you want me to lead a small group in our lunchroom for your glory, tell me. Now you can write that off and say, well, that's coincidence. That happens all the time. (laughs) If that happens in your world, I want to go with you to Vegas. And I don't even gamble. But let me tell you what, if that's the kind of coincidence that you're walking into all the time, I'm with you. We're riding your horse. God in that moment, and here's what she said. For me to not lead this study is to be disobedient to God. That's what the prophetic word does. God supernaturally works through his pastor. Doesn't even tell John. But brings to mind the things that he's going to say. 
And they're so specific that a woman who's got in her prayer journal, I prayed in the lunchroom this week, God. Let me tell you what, she believes. If I don't lead that small group, I'm being disobedient to God. We haven't added to the scriptures. We haven't supplanted the scriptures. We haven't rejected them. We've simply said that God is at times uh, normative every day. Don't think so. But at times he's going to bring to a person. He's going to bring to a church. Or he's going to bring to a man. I have a word for you. I'm preaching one Sunday. Three points in that sermon, unlike today, which I had, I think, four. And this gentleman walks down when I'm done and he said, when did my wife call you? And he said, she didn't call me. And he looks at me and he's fiery at this point. He said, you're a liar. So what makes you think that your wife called me? Because we had a fight on Friday night and the three points that we fought about are the three points of the sermon of your message. I took him into my office thought that this would prove it. I opened my computer and showed him the day that I saved my sermon because I manuscripted them all out. I told him the day that I saved it and you would have thought, to be honest with you, that he would have said, Pastor, I'm sorry. Maybe even, wow, I think God's trying to speak to me. He continued his allegation, you're a liar. You've talked to my wife. Now I'm not that computer savvy that I know how to save my sermon later and make it look like I did it on Thursday. (laughs) But I told him this on the way out the door as I helped him walk out the door. I I just said, hey, um, I know today you think I'm a liar. But let's imagine for a moment that your wife didn't talk to me. Let's imagine for a moment that I actually did save that sermon on Thursday and you had a fight on Friday. You know what it tells you? It tells you the God that you and I both worship saw on Thursday what you were going to do on Friday. And maybe you ought to receive my message today, not that I'm a liar, but that God has a voice and he wants to say something to you. He left our church, drug his wife out, left her a few years later. Because you see, when somebody speaks a prophetic word to you, God says there's a consequence if you disobey. We're not adding to the scripture. God just supernaturally on that day decided to use me and write a message that ironically People say, man, that message was just for me. And I would say, with all due respect, probably not. But on that day, I'd have to say, yep, God said, I'm going to write a message for one guy and tick him off. (laughs) You see, friends, the prophet, the person moving under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, doesn't move outside of Scripture, but grasps the meaning of Scripture and perceives its powerful relevance in a moment for an individual, for a church, for a society, and decides, I will declare this to the best of my ability, fearlessly. It's the principle of edification. There's one last one, and this one will be shorter. 
It's the principle of participation. Paul makes this statement. He says in verse 13, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Why? Because otherwise all you're doing is speaking to God, which is not bad. And Paul doesn't say, I want you to stop it. He just says, don't bring it into the church. Now to our dear friends, the Pentecostals who say that you have to have the gift of the Holy Spirit to manifest the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I I say as graciously as I can, no, you don't. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 12 tells me that when you became a believer, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, The scripture also says, Paul's very clear, that if you receive the gift of tongues, um, I don't see the the Acts model being revealed at all. And I seldom see the 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 done in a way that honors the scripture. He says, when you come to church, the idea that a group of you are going to be sitting there having this own prayer language, praying to God and, and doing your own thing, irregardless or disregarding the rest of the body of Christ, Paul says, no, you don't get the church at all. When you come, if you're going to speak in a tongue, you do not have permission to use it unless you have a person who you have identified that has the gift of interpretation. Why? Because when you come to the church, you're about edification. You're not about your own personal exercise of your gift. Have I prayed for the gift of tongue? Yes. For 30 years. I don't believe God stopped it. I see no biblical evidence at all that he stopped it but God has never chosen to give it to me and what I see predominantly out there in the world is really something that doesn't line up with the scriptures at all in fact I would go as far as to say will you ever see the gift of tongues prominently exercised in our church probably not you know why because Paul says I would rather you speak five intelligible words than 10,000 that's a lot words of a tongue Why? Because Paul says the gifts are about the edification of the church, not the individual. Therefore, tongues should never be normative. Paul says, yeah, I do it more than anyone. But there's no indication that Paul, when he goes into Ephesus, when he goes into Thessalonica, when he goes to Corinth, that that's the predominance of it. In fact, it's not. He's a teacher. He's edifying the body of Christ. So actually, tongues should be, from my understanding, quite a secondary gift, rarely, if ever, used in the body of Christ unless there's an interpreter. And if that happens, first of all, it would freak all of us out. Let's be honest. Secondly, we would come back to the scriptures and said, God, teach us how you want us to use this. But what should be happening, what we should even pray for, is this revelation called prophecy, where it is a specific word who has the grasp of the scripture and the relevance of a person's life or a society or a church. What's the benefit of that? Let me give you a few things. Number one, it will make a person aware of their own sin. It doesn't mean that the church becomes this heavy place. It's like, I got a sin for you today. I know what you've been doing. That's not what the body of Christ is about. But when prophecy is utilized, that's what happens. Number two, it will alert a person to the reality of judgment and eternal consequence of our choices here on earth. My friend, 
You can walk out today and call me a liar, but you might want to entertain that God is speaking to you. And if he is, I would plead with you, listen. Number three, it brings a person to their knees before God. Every time that I've been involved where I think that there is a prophetic word given, that person, be it Francis Schaeffer, be it my other friends, be it John Piper, it is bringing a person or a group of people or a nation to their knees before God, pleading with them just like Jonah reluctantly pleaded with Nineveh, repent or God is going to destroy you. It's not God's intention and desire. It's just the result if you don't repent. And lastly, it will lead people to seek God's grace and forgiveness. There's a church that I know of that I fully anticipate will close. It's going to be tragic, but they were warned. There's a gentleman who walked away from his wife. Christmas is miserable for them. But God warned him. And he walked away from it. There's a woman who's leading a Bible study on the 34th floor of the IDS building. She's not perfect. She just knows she has a calling from God. The study's flourishing. It's a delight. That's why the church needs the gift of prophecy. Not so that we can tell people, wow, A Baptist church has the Holy Spirit. We've always had the Holy Spirit. Please don't tell me we haven't. But maybe now we're going to ask and say, you know what, God, if you want to do this, we'll honor you. We'll submit to your word. Because there might be some marriages in this room that need to be saved. There might be some people who have secret lives that God wants to expose, not to shame you, but so that you repent and lead your family well. And God might want to bring that word to you. Don't mock it. Don't deny it. Because God may ask you, I want you to speak a word that they might live.